You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and today we're talking to Alexine Boudoir, AE at Logicate, about her triple threat prospecting approach. One of the things that I always get really excited about is talking to other sales reps. And don't get me wrong, it's fun to interview you know, sales trainers like myself and people that have you know, best-selling authors and that sort of stuff, but I get a lot of enjoyment out of interviewing people that are doing this like on the ground level you know, every day. And that's what I get a chance to do today. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, my name's Jason Bay. I'm the host of the show. And our goal is to help you really think outside the script when it comes to your prospecting so that you can use tactics and strategies that work to set more meetings with your ideal clients. I'm really excited for our guest today because Alexine, who I'm about to talk to, was introduced to me through Rajiv Nathan, who was on our show uh, on the last episode. And what really stuck out to me about her when I took out a look at her LinkedIn profile is just all the high earner achievements that she has. <laughs> so she's been a top performer at most of her roles uh, that she's worked at. And she got started and she's going to talk about it later today. It's pretty crazy. But she used to make 170 cold calls a day at one of her first sales jobs. And she had to do the demos and the follow-up for this too. So she was doing full cycle sales without a predictive dialer. And uh, it was really funny because I'm trying to visualize myself doing and putting in that type of effort and how exhausted and sweaty <laughs> I would probably be. So we're going to talk about that. She's got this approach that she calls triple threat prospecting. And it's really cool because she's going to talk about like, how she researches a project and goes straight into calling and using LinkedIn and like what she says in an email, you're going to get all of those specifics, which I'm super excited for you to hear. And then the other thing too, that is really, really important that we're going to dig into is what's called multi-threading. If you've never heard of that before, multi-threading is essentially engaging multiple prospects at the same company because most buying decisions, especially at really large companies, there's a whole committee of people that typically get together to make that decision. So how do you get the right people involved and how do you get them involved earlier in the process so that you can close the sale faster or find out that there isn't a sale to be had there and that you need to talk later. So she's going to walk us through that. Before you check out the interview here, I want to let you know we just launched an online community. We already have several dozen people in there. And essentially our goal with this was you know, prospecting is something that you do that's very hard. And we want to provide an environment for you where you don't have to do that alone and also provide some really great training stuff that we normally deliver to companies to you as an individual. So check that out at blissfulprospecting.com and just go to join the community to check out the details. There's some really cool stuff in there if you want to you know, network with other people that are you know prospecting and dealing with the same types of challenges and you just want to learn from your peers. And also we have a really cool course in there. It's got a reply method and all of our approach and processes for prospecting as well in setting meetings. So make sure to check that out, blissfulprospecting.com. Click on join the community, check out the details, and let's get into the interview. All right. So we were introduced through uh, Raj, right? Yeah. <laughs> so how do you know Raj again? So I don't actually know exactly how the two of us met, but yeah. we run in very similar circles in Chicago. We both attend like a lot of sales networking events. So I think we have just crossed paths over the years a number of times. And I know he's a great rapper. So someone I wanted to have in my pool, my network. <laughs> yeah. Has he recorded a rap video for you before? He has not. So oh, okay. I, I used to get birthday rap videos from him. I, I got to give him some shit about that later. <laughs> I haven't gotten one in a couple of years, Raj. What's, what's going on, man? Um, but uh, 
he was like, Hey, you know, you got to interview my friend. Um, cause I was looking for, at the time I, I was recording podcasts and I noticed that I had a, a backlog of like basically all dudes. And yeah. I was like, I definitely need some more women in here. You know, like who should I interview and that kind of thing. And he recommended you. So we talked and your career has been really interesting cause I did some research and let's kind of backtrack. I, I noticed that it looks like you're really like well-traveled. Did you do a lot of like, did you do like a study abroad kind of thing in college? I studied abroad uh, three times in college. So I lived in Ireland my freshman summer, and then I did a semester at sea my sophomore year. And then I actually did an internship in Australia in Sydney with a female entrepreneur because I was studying entrepreneurship at the time. So yeah, yeah, a lot of travel more so, you know, eight to 10 years ago versus today, but (laughs) yeah. So what, um, I, I got that. Were you into sales at that time? Did you know you were going to get into sales? You said you were studying with an entrepreneur. Did you want to run a business? Like when did you figure out that you wanted to get into sales? Uh, I don't think I knew that I wanted to get into sales really? during any of that time. I think sales ironically was in my bo- my back pocket the entire time. Like growing up, I was always every single fundraiser I could get my hands on every single like door to door sales thing. I loved Um, I worked in my mom's restaurant, so I would always be like selling product for her and trying to push, you know, anything from like jams to pastas, whatever, um, from her storefront. So sales was always in my life. But I think that, you know, at the time that I was going through Purdue, they were just starting to launch the sales program. And I didn't really realize you could do it as a career. And it wasn't really a career path that was, you know, uh, everybody considered it to be like a used car salesperson or that's mm-hmm. what a salesperson is. So I didn't know that there was like this elevated, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial SaaS based salesperson. Um, so I actually graduated from Purdue thinking I was going to go into retail buying and I wanted to work oh, for wow. like Lehman Marcus and um, go to Milan and buy really, you know, exquisite fabrics. And that's what I thought that that world looked like. And you actually had to work in a storefront for six months in order to qualify for their buying program. So you had to be a salesperson. Um, And so when it came to the time that I needed to get my recommendation, my manager at the time, she's like, I will, of course, write your your referral, but you've been having, you know, 10, you know, $20,000 sales weeks at a storefront in Neiman Marcus. I mean, these are incredible (laughs) numbers. She's like, I think there's something else here you should pursue. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do with it? And so Somehow, um, I got linked up with Visa Now, and that was my first tech sales role. So it just kind of took off from there. Oh, that's awesome. So you, like a, basically every other person that I've talked to in sales, got into it accidentally, it sounds yep, like. Exactly. I fell into it 100%. So you mentioned something about the stigma. Is that still something that you deal with at all or just with people that you work with? Do you ever get that where they feel kind of dirty about being a salesperson? Um, not so much anymore. Now that I'm in like the enterprise SaaS sales space, not, yeah. not, you've been doing it for a while too. Yeah. And I've been, yeah, I've been in it for a while, but I think there's always going to be the underlying stigma um, that's attached to sales. I think, you know, on some level where there's going to be people that think, you know, this person's just here to make money. I think the way that you get around that is by becoming more of a relationship based person. I'm always yeah. focused on relationships. I love um, building and growing those with new clients. And um, I just really like people. So I think that organically comes through and it kind of helps alleviate any of that. But I think that's the key to kind of getting around any of that stigma if it does exist. Let's talk about this because I, I'm i seeing this a lot in the work we do with uh, reps, especially right now with all the 
COVID-19 coronavirus kind of stuff where they're feeling almost like they're taking advantage or preying on people that are in a place of weakness, even when they have a solution or, you know, a product or service that can really genuinely help them right now. How, what would you say to a person? Like, how do you think of the, because you said relationship-based, which I love. Um, yeah. Is there a difference between helping and selling? Um, that's a great question. I think, you know, today, um, ironically, I don't think the messaging for strong salespeople is changing that much because I think that strong salespeople are always leading with the relationship component. Mm-hmm. So I think others are just catching on to the fact that if, for instance, your messaging feels like it's too slimy right now, <laughs> maybe it's because it was like a little bit slimy all along. To begin with, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's actually, you know, I think it's just us kind of doing a reset in terms of like, how do we reach out to prospects, especially if we have a product that makes sense. I work in the governance, risk and compliance space. So this is, you know, we sell a product for, um, for business continuity planning. So this is right in our wheelhouse. So I don't think there's a reason, you know, for me on a personal level, I would not want to just stop prospecting altogether because I would be doing my potential clients a disservice. So I think it's just resetting and understanding how we want to reach out to these folks And what do we want that messaging to look like? And then thinking about that moving forward too, it's not just, you know, during the COVID-19 crisis, I think we also need to think about, you know, this is going to change and shift, I think in general in the coming years. So I think we just all have to kind of do a reset. And if we are just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall, maybe we need to do a little reassessment and understand what's working and what's not. Yeah. Okay. Before we dig into this, I want to make sure we don't skip over. There's like a big chunk of your career there where I just, like I was looking at your LinkedIn, I was like, oh, uh, high sales achiever, president's award, like where you just like crushed it, like for uh, a a period of time there. Um, How did you get into like prospecting specifically? Like you have systems and things, you teach a lot of people how to do this and you run workshops and you're an AE now and you work with SDRs and that sort of stuff. When did you start really feeling like you figured out prospecting in terms of at least like a framework of how to approach it? Yeah. So I wish that I had a really beautiful story of how I got <laughs> into prospecting and that I learned like a really strong sales methodology. And I studied Sandler for six months and got like really well, you know, educated and got some structure. The reality is when I started at Visa Now, SDRs and BDRs didn't exist at the time. So what we were responsible for was not only closing new business, but also prospecting, running the demos ourselves. So I was running a full book of business, sometimes doing 170 cold calls a day. I still have screenshots. I think some of those reports just cracks me up. But yeah, I mean, I was just literally hustling. I had no cold calling experience. I had, um, you know, very limited insight into even really what tech sales was when I got into it. So Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a choice other than to just hit the phones right away. And at the time, we also didn't have like Zoom info was just kind of launching and there wasn't like a ton of good sales tools yet. So a lot of what we'd have to do is actually like prospect through the main line of a company and sort of weasel our way over to people's direct lines. So it was a lot more of this kind of strategic prospecting and LinkedIn wasn't totally there yet. I don't think like eight or so years ago. So I think um, so I think a lot of my work in understanding prospecting was just, you know, really getting in there and just diving in head first. And with calling, especially, it was really tough at first, because especially if you're doing 100 plus touches a day for folks that have done that, I mean, you are getting rejected left and right. Yeah. Um, but I think that 
that's the way to do it because now, you know, for me to pick up the phone, I have zero anxiety about what's going to happen on the other end. It's just another conversation. I'm talking to another human being and it's going to be fine at the end of the day. Yeah. Dude, that's a lot of dials. That's, uh, that's some serious, were you doing that manually or did you guys have like a predictive dialer or anything like that? Yeah, we were doing it. (laughs) It was intense. I'm telling like, I would like be sweating by the end of the day. So it wasn't, I mean, it was not like the prettiest, uh, you know, start in sales, but I'm actually really grateful for it because I think if I had had like an SDR helping me, I don't think I would have pushed myself as hard to do some of that prospecting ahead of time. And now that I started out with that as kind of my framework from day one, it's a lot easier for me to prospect where I see a lot of AEs who really never had to do their own prospecting. And they're really struggling when their companies are asking them to pivot now and do mm-hmm. some prospecting on their own. Um, I've had, um, I have had guys on my team before um, at past companies. So, you know, I remember this one guy had like 12 years of sales experience and he pulled me aside in the kitchen um, years ago and he was like, I've never done a cold call before. Like, can you wow. do a session with me? And I was like, you have double the years of sales experience as me. Like, come on, man. Um, but I think, so I'm actually very grateful for how I started out and kind of that tough road. Do you think that prospecting is like a really underrated skill, a skill set, especially for AEs? Yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, I think it's um, underrated. I also think it's ironically highly sought after too. So I think, yeah. you know, it's, there are really interesting ways that I think companies can uncover if people will or won't prospect. Um, so I've brought this up to um, some companies before that I think is an interesting interview question. It sounds really basic, but what I would ask someone is, you know, if you were to work on McDonald's, for instance, um, can you walk me through what the sales process looks like? And very quickly, you can differentiate between people who are familiar with prospecting, people who aren't, because a lot of people that aren't will start out with, yeah, like I'll reach out to XYZ point of contact, I'll schedule the discovery call with them, I'll do some qualification guidelines, we'll move to the demo. Whereas when I was asked that question during many of my interview processes, I'm way back the beginning. I'm like, here's the the cast that I'm going to spread, I'm going to do a wide net, I'm going to reach out to points of contact in these four departments. Then from there, I'm going to look for these points of contacts, maybe I'll leverage their executive assistants. So that front end of my yeah. answer is so much lengthier than where other people are starting out. So I think there's ways you can kind of suss out who's actually yeah. familiar with prospecting. That's a really good, really great interview tip there. Yeah. So let's just get, let's get into the good stuff here. So with, I mean, we have to talk about the, you know, sort of the COVID-19 approach in terms of like what we've had to change and I really resonate with what you said, because I don't think that the approach necessarily has changed much. We just got to revisit the approach and kind of almost look at, hey, do we need to take another look at our ICPs and who we're going after and, and change that up a little bit, you know, to businesses that are where there's a bigger opportunity or focus less on businesses that are like super you know, impacted right now. Yeah. Really reframe the message around the value, all that stuff. But like, what was, and you have a system, so feel free to triple threat prospecting was what I kind of called it based on what you shared. I don't know if that's what you call it. I thought that was pretty cool, but what's your system maybe for approaching like how you guys prospect in terms of the messaging, like with you and your, your SDR and, and how have you guys, what changes have you made in light of everything that's happening right now? So I'll revisit the triple threat, but as far uh, as it's not, uh, it's still somewhat applicable, but I think it's more applicable, you know, in the coming weeks after we've sort of come up above water a little bit. 
But as far as our prospecting right now, um, for instance, my SDR and I together set three meetings yesterday alone. The difference is some of the things that we're removing hard um, deadlines. Like, can you speak by, you know, Thursday afternoon of this week? We're trying to be a little more lenient. Like, hey, can you speak in the next couple of weeks, for instance? So we're being cognizant of the fact that they have other stuff going on. The messaging has changed a bit. So the beginning and end of the message is a lot more empathetic. You know, hey, I hope you're doing as well as could possibly be expected, given given everything that's going on today's environment. Um, Maybe the end of the message is like, you know, hope you're well, Um, you know, stay healthy, stay safe. So it's a little bit more thinking that approach in terms of the actual messaging we're putting out. And then the cadences, I wouldn't say are as tight as they would be on a normal, um, you know, if the pandemic wasn't going on, like we're not trying to do an every other day touch necessarily. Um, For me, I'm trying to space things out like probably every fourth day where I would normally do like every two days. So just little changes like that. But I think just coming at it with a more of a sense of empathy, even more so than we normally do. And I also think a lot of our message is thinking um, future state and what's relevant. So for us, we're leading a lot with this business continuity planning uh, component, you know, um, not necessarily targeting uh, COVID-19. I mean, we're already in the thick of it, but thinking forward thinking, you know, if something happens down the road, wouldn't it, great, wouldn't it be great to have a technology in place that could help you manage this and manage what could happen, you know, two, three, four years down the road and already have a framework in place? So I think we're thinking more strategically and trying to partner with them on more of a long-term vision. Um, so can we pause there for? Let, yeah. Can we pause there for a second? That's really interesting what you said, and and for the people that don't know what your company does, uh, what uh, if someone's not like technical? What in layman's term does your company does? Because it's actually really cool and very relevant for the the times right now. Yeah. So high level, I mean, it's governance, risk, and compliance, which is heavy stuff. Um, but if you think of it on a a more micro level, essentially we're providing a solution that allows them to have frameworks, to have workflows built out, to manage internal processes that are typically handled via Excel or via email. So it's really just an automated system to manage all these processes that already exist in house today, but most of the time are not managed well. Or alternatively, they're usually using um, some of these legacy platforms that have existed in the market for 10 plus years. Mm -hmm. And they're not very agile. They're not very intuitive or user friendly. There's a lot of implementation that goes into them, a lot of resources that they have to collect from IT. So we're providing them a platform that they can use that's, you know, built on a drag and drop process builder that allows them to make changes without having to write any line of code. So I think those are some of the main reasons that companies choose to partner with us. It's just kind of taking what's always been a little bit of a crunchier industry and making it easier to use and easier to manage for a lot of these organizations. What's an example, like with one of the meetings you set yesterday, what's an example of like what that company does um, in terms of like a process they might have? Yeah. So one of the meetings, I mean, I hate to keep going back to um, business continuity, but one of the meetings we sat yesterday was related to that. Um, the messaging was extremely plain and extremely simple, just saying, you know, with in light of everything that's going on, you know, we have a solution that can help you manage this alongside some of these other processes that you might be working through, like IT risk or um, internal um, audit, you know, some of these other areas that you might have focused oh, okay. on. So audits, so an audit is an example of something that they would normally have a workflow in place for that's like really like on a dot, like a Word doc or like an Excel sheet or something like that. And you guys are coming through and automating that. And 
I'm sure it saves, t- is there a compliance factor to what you guys are helping with too, or does it just save time? Certainly. And I mean, the big pieces are the time savings, the ability yeah. to make sure there's no room for human error. I think that yeah. for me is always the spookiest part when we're talking about Excel and you know some of these other more antiquated processes. I think just removing that risk yeah. of there being a human error. And then a lot of it too is just having reminders built out in a system. There's a lot of follow-up for these companies where they're trying, for instance, if they have employee attestations and they need to just keep following up with employees to get them to sign off on those our software can allow them to just simply send out notifications for that. They have reporting capabilities that are, you know, seamless, easy to use, whereas before they would have to create those themselves and then present those to the board. So just kind of alleviating a lot of what's been a manual process, Uh, not unlike a lot of SaaS companies, but just with a different focus point. Got it. And, uh, and there's a reason for me asking all this stuff. I'm trying to give a little bit perspective to, whoever might be listening, because I want to get into some of the messaging type of stuff. Like what's the typical persona that you're selling? Is it a technical person, like a CTO or someone like that? Um, sometimes it's usually like a chief information security officer. Okay. Sometimes we deal with uh, chief compliance officers. Um, the beauty and you know one of the harder points of what we sell is that we could be selling to a number of different personas because of the mm-hmm. different um, modules within our platform, you know, you're moving through compliance over to it risk. So it does flow through different departments, but that's where I deflect back to really casting that wider net, because what we're trying to do is provide a holistic solution for managing all of these different processes. And by the way, our platform can tie all these seamlessly together. So you can, you know, you don't have to do repetitive work in the system. Your employees can have oversight into some of the other areas of the platform um, so the idea really is just helping to educate the marketplace and let them know this is out there. I, I love that. So when you go, what is, what are you thinking when you guys go to put together a cold email? What are, what are you thinking? Like, what is, what are the components of that? Like, how are you like, what's going on inside your head when you're thinking about, is this a good message or is this not a good message? And what do I need to include here? Um, So this isn't a perfect science, but for me, I lean more on social and phone. So when I'm emailing, it's usually um, first and foremost going to, you know, I'm going to try to personalize or if I have any kind of connection to the company or someone that I know there, obviously I'm going to lead with that. Um, But for me, messaging, I think about how I would want to read an email. And for me, simplicity is everything because what I hate is when I get an email that's like three pages long. And I can't understand what it's talking about. And it feels like a homework assignment for me. (laughs) So I don't want to give other people homework assignments. I'm just trying to schedule meetings. So I want to give them just enough that gets them interested in having a conversation. So normally I'll try to send out like videos, any kind of relevant content, but I'm leading a lot with our marketing material. So I'm basically just kind of trailing marketing in terms of what kind of content, because they're the ones that, you know, really have an ear to the ground and are studying and understanding, you know, what's going on inside of our marketplace. So that's what I'm doing. I'm just kind of leaning on them to understand what's most applicable. And then also like pivoting based on what type of persona I'm reaching out to. Obviously, if it's chief compliance officer, I'll probably lead with something compliance related versus, you know, something else. So, so just thinking about who I'm reaching out to, why I'm reaching out to them, and then what's the easiest way I can convey my message in the fewest amount of words possible. Got it. So what does the cadence look like for you then? If it sounds like you lean heavy on phone and, and social, what's the typical cadence look like for you guys right now? And it sounds like you've adjusted it a little bit, but what does, what does yeah. it typically look like? So it totally varies. I mean, um, right now, I th- like I said, I think we're spreading it out a little bit further than we normally would. 
Um, but typically for me, what I do, and I'll, I'll go to the triple touch method now, um, but essentially what I do when I'm prospecting an account, I'll start on LinkedIn. So what I'll do is actually click on the person's LinkedIn, have their page pulled up. While I'm on their page with their information in front of me, I'll pick up the phone and actually call them. More likely than not, they probably won't answer on the first dial. So what I'll do is then leave a voicemail referencing an email that I'm going to be sending after that voicemail. So within the span of maybe two minutes, I've now showed them my face via LinkedIn. I've, they've heard my voice via, you know, via the voicemail. And then on email, they've now seen my writing. So they basically know who I am at that point. And that's helped me really trim down uh, some of my touches. Because I think for me, the biggest thing is I just want to get to the yes or no as fast as possible, not only with the deal, but also with meetings. Because for instance, if I keep prospecting this person for months and months, and they're not even the right point of contact, and I find that out, I would rather know that, you know, within a span of two weeks than a span of three months. So that's kind of the methodology I use. And that's what I really focus on that's helped me. So uh, you do something that I do a lot as well, where I like picking up the phone to be the very first touch versus sending a couple emails and like letting things wait. Because if I can gather enough information from their LinkedIn profile, I don't want to waste a bunch of time hunting down people either. And, you know, it's like you're you're an AE, you got, you have deals to close too. So you don't just sit around yeah. and prospect all day. I run a, a business also with my <laughs> wife. Like I don't just do sales. All, I wish I could do sales all day actually yeah. <laughs> um, uh, prospect, but um, I like that. So the, the triple thread is like, Hey, I'm looking at their LinkedIn. They're going to get a notification that I visited their profile. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call them knowing that I'm going to leave a voicemail. And you said something there that I've heard uh, a lot of people do that I've started doing as well. And recommending is you leave a voicemail and you tell them to look at the email, like what, can you give us an example of what a voicemail might sound like? I'm sure, you know, um, you know, Hey, this is Alexine calling from Logigate. I was trying to reach out to you, um, you know, regarding your governance risk and compliance processes. I haven't been able to catch you via phone. So I'm actually going to send over an email really quick here. So you could take a look at that. And then I'm hopeful the two of us can connect in the next couple of weeks here for a quick conversation. And then sometimes, I mean, uh, that's one example, but sometimes I don't even drop the company name. Like sometimes I would just say like, hi, this is Alexine calling. I wanted to reach out to you to speak a little bit further regarding your governance, risk and compliance processes in house and understand what that looks like today. Um, I'm going to send you over an email. And if you could get back to me with a couple of times that work well for your schedule, I'll look forward to connecting soon. So just trying to keep it like essentially for me, the voicemail is sort of a touch that's it's not meaningless but it's not going to garner usually a callback so i'm not really mm -hmm. expecting like a strong call to action from do you that. believe the sales like guru types that say you know i know how to get people to return 80 percent of your voicemails is that a thing like have you ever seen that before maybe i think i yeah. think there's you know i think everybody has their own methodology that works for yeah. them for me phones catching people live it usually works a lot better for me than using voicemail and yeah. catching people on LinkedIn and working through some of the more of the social selling side piece has worked a lot better for me as well. But I know people that lean on all different types. There's people I've known SDRs who have never picked up the phone and they just do email. And while I don't think that's, you know, great practice for them, especially if you're trying to move into an AE role, I think that, you know, whatever works for people that's helping them hit their KPIs, I mean, God bless. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm sure that there's people that can get folks to return their calls um, there's definitely other ways that you can approach um, that you can approach uh, leaving a voicemail too. I think my biggest piece is the only reason I'm leaving that is to tell them that they have an email coming. 
And the other reason, yeah. I mean, this sounds kind of silly, but I think that there's a psychology aspect too. Um, with salespeople, one of the biggest issues that we see is that a lot of times salespeople don't follow through on what they say they're going to. Like you're supposed to send, you know, this over, especially once you get into these deals that are, you know, a lot heavier lift where you have to do a lot more helping with like business cases or helping build out a proof of concept for a company. You know, we start to to kind of drop some of those pieces. So I think with this, it's just showing them up front, like, hey, this person actually followed through with something that they said they were going to. So I think it just sets a tone for a good relationship in a very simple manner. So, yeah, there's so many things I want to ask you about here because there's <laughs> I, there's conflicting thoughts that people have on so much of this. It's crazy. Yeah, and yeah. I like what you said there too, where it's, hey, sometimes things just work for you and that's your style and you should just yeah. do that, you know? Um, Okay. So when you send the email, you mentioned that you uh, share uh, content from marketing. Yeah. How do you, can you give me an example of like what that, because most of the content, especially at the enterprise level that I've seen is super dense. And yeah. oftentimes, unless your marketing and sales department work really closely together, in my experience, the salespeople kind of have to be like, uh, like, look at this specific page on this and, and pick out this specific thing because a lot of it's just kind of filled with jargon yeah. and the market, nothing against marketers. I used to, I've done both ends of yeah. ends of it. Um, a lot of times what happens to you is the marketing people are not the ones having the one-to-one conversation. So they're not quite as in tune with what the content should be if it's used for prospecting. Yeah. So how, like, how do you make, how do you connect the two? and make it easy for the person to consume and, and see the value of it without it being another 40 page white paper. Yeah. And that's a very fair point because I have worked in companies in the past where you see some of that collateral and you look at it and you're like, I, I don't even want to read this when I work here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I agree. I mean, it definitely happened in the past. Um, I think for us, one of the big assets we have, um, we have a gentleman who does our videography internally and mm-hmm. so he is, he actually physically sits between sales and marketing, ironically. Um, but we have basically like a queue of like what we're hearing, what kind of content we think we should be putting out. So we're really actually sharing, I think, in a good way back and forth between sales and marketing, what we're hearing on the ground in these discovery calls, in these conversations, and getting that back to the team. I also think our content is a little bit more um, focused on like, uh, video. I think I, I tend to lead, I mean, we definitely have written content as well, but we produce a lot of videos. We have a pretty strong YouTube presence. So mm-hmm. like with the COVID-19, our CEO put out a message and it was a letter that he just recorded face to face for everyone. Um, we have a lot of content that is um, members of our um, CS team, you know, walking through certain use cases or some of our solutions engineers. So I think you're actually, I really like our content because they're actually seeing someone who works at the company that's explaining something and doing it in a way that's understandable and digestible. That's not like, you know, a nightmare to listen to. Um, For instance, we just um, posted a video um, and it was one of our heads of our CS team. And then at the end, like her cat was part of the video too. So I think you're just trying to humanize some of that content, especially in an industry like governance, risk and compliance, where it is really heavy. I mean, there's no getting around that, but at the same time, we do need to find ways to make it fun. And so I like to focus on the video messaging and um, really, you know, try to send some of that out because I think it gives a face to us as well. And they get to know our people. And then what's cool is later in the sales process, a lot of times we bring in those same folks that maybe they've watched their videos before. So it's kind of like a cool connection point. They're like, Oh yeah, you're the person from that video with the cat. And it's just, you know, it's just cool stuff like that where it starts to connect the dots. 
Yeah, it's really humanizing, like you said, you know, when people yeah. can see your face. Um, what would the email, because I'm asking you these questions because salespeople are always going to want to know, like, tactically, okay, I, I get sending a video. What what would an email sound like to get? Because I, I find personally one of the hardest things, even if I record like a video, like a personalized video for the person is getting them to actually click on the video. Like, what would the email sound like? And do you put a thumbnail of the video in there? Is it a hyperlink? Like, what's like, what, what does it look and sound like? Yeah. So like one of the emails, I'm just pulling one up because I wanted to look at an example. Um, you know, again, to my point, this is one that I would focus more for like COVID-19, but I would start off by, of course, acknowledging, you know, with everything that's going on, I hope, you know, everything's going as well as can be expected. Um, you know, I understand that priorities internally may have shifted. So you're acknowledging right off the bat, like, I get it. You guys are not like your first priority, regardless what you sell is not going to be like sales enablement tools or this or that. That's not what they're thinking right now. Um, what I wanted to share is that we recently started giving access to our business continuity module. So this is one where I hyperlinked it and I just have the actual words hyperlinked so they can click there. Um, and here's a video. I was curious if this is something you might want to look at in tandem with an ERM solution as you continue to explore options down the road. And would you have availability for, you know, a couple, like 15, 20 minutes in the coming week to two here where we can discuss. So trying to versus make like a harder sell at the end where I'm like, is this something that you guys are in the market for? Or like, we're not trying to, um, we're trying to do more of a give than a get. And I think that's the yeah. biggest piece here. You know, here's a video. Here's what our here's what we're actually offering to our current clients today. Is this something that you think your company this would help you guys right now? And if so, let's just have a conversation, a really brief conversation. And a lot of times, what I do with emails too, which um, this is super old school methodology, but it's always worked for me, is I typically will end the emails and just say you know, if this is something that doesn't make sense for your organization, no worries, then we'll just part ways. Um, but I welcome the opportunity to just have a conversation and see if there's a match here. So I'm just I'm giving them an out before they're even in. And I think that people appreciate that. Um, but that's something that I do a lot with emails, too, because I just want to, I think sometimes, um, you know, as salespeople, for better or for worse, we are very, um, oriented in terms of having a process. And I think a lot of us have been taught that way. And like, here's the first step, then we go to disco, then the next step's the demo. And so these prospects are also getting used to that process too. So when we reach out to them, and we ask about the meeting, like these, these are smart folks, like they're realizing like, okay, well, that's a qual call. And then now we have to go to disco <laughs> and then a demo after that. Oh, yeah. now there's a proposal call. And then now we have to do like, a, so they're, feeling like they're signing on for something. So I feel like it's important sometimes if you can just soften the end of these emails. So it's not so much like you are indebted to us if you agree to this meeting. Like it just let's have a conversation and see if it even makes sense. And a lot of times what I'll do too is I'll, you know, I'll acknowledge even on some of these introductory calls. I don't know if this makes sense for you guys either until I understand what you're doing today. Because what if they have a really, you know, what if they have a process that's working? Or what if they have a zero dollar process or zero dollar you know, budget. I mean, how do we help with that? So I think that there's different approaches that we can take. Um, but I think it's all about just resetting our expectations as salespeople and understanding that our buyers are getting much savvier and they're starting to really understand the marketplace than they understand sales processes. Like I've even seen responses um, uh, floating around LinkedIn. I'm sure you've seen these too, where it says like, stop sandlering me or stop, you know, like people yeah. are very you know, cognizant of what sales looks like nowadays. So I think just trying to be cognizant of that and, and just approaching things more carefully. 
Yeah. What you said, I think is so important around, um, you know, they get that they're signing up for an experience. So if I say yes to this meeting, I get that, Hey, I'm now signing up for this experience. What that means it's going to take my time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have to feel bad maybe throughout the process by saying yeah. no, or yeah. and I don't like rejecting people. Yeah. I love the psychology of giving people a way out. I, I, I guess it's old school, but um, I find the same thing. I think it's very, very effective. And we do the same stuff when we invite people onto the show or to collaborate with content or during a sales process. I love in the intro call, even you say like, I don't know if this is a good fit. It's very disarming. Yeah. And I don't know where this came from. Maybe it's just the really old school, like assume the sale. Yeah. I think it's really bad advice because then your tone is just really assumptive. It's like, I need to get a meeting. When I do an intro call, I need to move them to a demo and then I need yeah. to get a proposal to them versus more a place of curiosity where like, you know, can I, does it even make sense here? Like, yeah. can I even help you? Yeah. And I don't think we, I think the thing is, um, I see like a lot of, you know, to your point, gurus who are like, of course my product can help. Well, how do you know? I mean, we don't, if we have a conversation yeah. with them. So I think, yeah, we need to take a step back sometimes. And I also think we need to like shake up the sales process a little bit too, I think we're so ingrained in the, and you know, part of it, compensation drives behavior. So depending on how companies comp, like SDRs, AEs, whatever for meetings, obviously that factors in, but I think it makes sense sometimes to pause and just do, do a second disco if you need it. Like, why are we jumping? Like, you know, for I mean, years ago I had like demos where we'd have like 10, 15 people from like, I mean, massive companies, like multi-billion dollar companies. And we are like, taking 30 minutes to learn what's going on. And then we're like jumping in the demo. I mean, that's not enough time to understand their business needs. So we need to also, you know, take a step back sometimes and like, do we need a second disco? Do we need a second demo? I've had multiple conversations in the last couple of weeks where we were like right up on time at the end and we didn't get through, you know, everything because they were asking so many questions. And I'm, I would never stop a prospect if they're asking a lot of questions and they're that interested in the demo. So I think, you know, for me, I'm like, you know, rather than us rush this, why don't we just set aside another 30 minutes? We'll jump into this in two days, pick back up where we left off and let's dive deeper. Or best case scenario, they're like, you know what? I want to bring more people on this. And we're like, Hey, maybe it'll be repetitive, but why don't we kind of do a higher level demo and bring all those folks in now too. So it can help, you know, really drive some of these yields, but we just have to think of these things differently too. I love that. I love it. So what happened? Proposal isn't like the next I think that's the other thing too. It's like, we're so, it's so ingrained in us. It's like, you did the demo proposal time. Like sometimes a proposal doesn't make sense and it spooks them because if this is a project, you know, especially for large enterprise organizations, if this is like a project that's like a year, year and a half out, what are, why are we presenting a proposal right now? Why don't we like understand more about their business case? Why don't we understand what they even need to do to get to the proposal stage? What if there's an RFP? I mean, a lot of times there is. So what are we, you know, do we want to be the first one at the table giving pricing? So there's a lot of considerations that go into that. But I think, you know, as account executives, specifically as a salesperson, I think it's up to us to really understand what we need to do for this company that makes most sense. And sometimes that means, you know, divert, diverting away from some of these more strict, you know, timelines that we've created. Yeah, it sounds like you're completely reversing the, I need to get them to fit in my sales approach. And instead, I need to learn more about what their buying process is first. Yeah. And but with the intention of, of shortening the sales cycle as much as possible. I mean, to, I'm yeah. very impatient in that approach too. So there's definitely yeah. that aspect of it where I still want to get the deal done as quickly as possible. But 
in certain cases, the way to do that isn't to press forward as fast as possible. It's to pause at certain points and figure out what else we need to do that's going to help us take a bigger step forward if we have more information or more stakeholders on the line. So yeah. I think, you know, we have to just think a little bit more strategically than we used to do in the past. What's your best advice for getting, you know, taking this multi-threading approach and getting more stakeholders involved? What's your best advice to get that done earlier in the sales process? Because what I've seen is like the earlier you can get other people involved, like the faster things typically tend to move along. Is that, has that been your experience by the way? That's just what I'm seeing. And if, yeah. like, how do you get people involved? What are your tips for getting people involved early in the process? Yeah, I think, well, I think it starts with the prospecting. I don't think, I think what happens is sometimes, and again, it goes back to compensation driving behavior. Sometimes, you know, we're so desperate to get a meeting that we get this lower level, like analyst level person or, you know, XYZ role that's never going to be a decision maker. And they might be a really great, you know, champion for the deal. They might be someone that's going to help, you know, help us bring in the right resources, but they're not going to be someone that can pull the trigger. So that's where we need to think about in prospecting, like who we're reaching out to. And, and then from there, I think if we do have someone that's lower level and we are single threaded through them we need to figure out how to coach them into bringing the right people in. It's not necessarily like, I think you have to be careful sometimes because you don't want to upset your point of contact and then like veer around them and then they feel like you betrayed them. So you have to kind of tread lightly. But at the same time, I think that you can help coach this person to understand like if they really like our company and they feel like we're a really good fit for them, it would behoove them to then include people on their side that are going to be decision makers or that are going to be stakeholders So I think it's having those conversations and just having, you know, honesty and just saying, you know, hey, I know for most of the companies that we're partnered with, for instance, that the chief compliance officer is pretty heavily involved in some of these determinations of products that you're going to choose for this. Wouldn't it make, do you think it would make the most sense maybe just to include them on this demo so that we can start to, you know, better get to understand, you know, what they're looking for and really get them to know Logigate from the get-go versus you bringing this to them later? And then just kind of doing that with as many people as we can internally too. So I use them as kind of, if I am single threaded, I just try to widen the deal as much as possible, especially if we're looking at different, um, for us, I mean, it's a full platform. So there's going to be products that that touch different departments throughout the organization. So, um, So I'm really trying to help coach them, but I'm also trying to understand what departments are touching this. So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of a quid pro quo, like you you know, they'll get more people involved, but you need to tell them why they need to get more people involved. So I think it's just yeah. kind of playing, um, you know, a little bit of a game there, but I think it's definitely one of the biggest issues. You know, we get stuck with one point of contact and more often than not, um, you know, we've all had a deal that we lost because that person left the company and then, you know, you're back to square one at that point. So I think um, it's definitely something that we're going to have to keep working through. Uh, this there's so much gold there in what you shared. That's awesome. So you said coaching your champion, which um, what does that look like? What what are some of the areas where you're coaching that, and how do you do it in a way where, like you said, some people think they have more power than they actually do. So yeah. you just want to be kind of sensitive to that and and not just be like, hey, I'm just using you to go over the top and and you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But um, how do you coach a champion? Where where do you where do you start with that? So I think you have to peel back the layers and actually understand, you know, what their program looks like and what they're trying to accomplish. And then at certain points, you know, once you develop a strong enough relationship, it almost leads them into pulling in the right resources. Like I've had deals recently where we're talking about, you know, a certain product that makes sense for them. And then 
you know, we start to talk about, okay, like what are the implications of not having a product of this, you know, for this process? Oh, and who, who else is impacted by that? And like, what kind of impact on their day does that have? And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, it's like actually pretty significant for their role. Like this is like 30 hours a week for them. Okay. Well, you know, thinking about that 30 hours, you know, maybe this is someone that we should probably include on the demo. Is it not? And they're like, yeah, actually like really good. So you kind of like, you know, like, you know, at the end of the day, what you're trying to accomplish, but at the same time, you're kind of coaxing them into it. Um, but I think that, I think that that's something that I'm constantly trying to play around with because it isn't that easy. Um, the other option that you can do is try to start from, uh, like I've done this with um, SDRs before where I go after the higher level points of contacts and they go after the lower level points of contact. And then maybe some of the lower level points of contact are just kind of information sources that help us understand certain things about the business. And then they help us to connect the dots and then they make certain introductions. And then, oh, but on this side, I'm actually working on, you know, their C-level folks. And then somewhere along the way, it just kind of comes together in the middle. So I think that those are you know, we can also partner with SDRs as salespeople and understand, you know, um, what are these lower level folks doing? What are the implications to them? Because that's going to look really different than how the C-levels, like they're going to care about top line. They're going to care about very different things than, you know, someone that's at the lower level of this hierarchy. Love it. Yeah. Any other tips around, like if the person doesn't respond to the LinkedIn thing that you, you mentioned, you call them, you email them. What what do you do after they don't respond? And, and maybe because you said you lean heavily in social. Is there anything else you do through LinkedIn? Um, so what I do, um, and I encourage other people to do this. I mean, it's so easy. There's no like, I mean, none of this is, you know, very advanced stuff. But essentially, I just try to interact with them and not in like a slimy way. I'm not trying to be, you know, overly aggressive on LinkedIn. But what I do is just try to interact with their posts. If they post something that's interesting, I'll like it. If they um, post an article that, you know, is something that makes sense for me to reshare, I'll reshare it. Um, if there's something that, you know, stood out to me, I'll put a comment on it without it being like stalkerish, but maybe, you know, especially if it's someone you really know you want to get in touch with, you know, maybe like once a week you do like one LinkedIn touch of some kind. And actually try to be genuine about it too. Like even if they post something that literally like perfectly aligns with your business, like do not sell, like I don't, I'm not a fan of selling in the comments, um, but just try to like build that relationship that way. Because if you think about mm -hmm. it, some of these people, VC levels, I mean, they maybe get three to five comments on all of their posts. If you comment on something, they're going to notice it. So yeah. I think it's just thinking about different ways to go about some getting some of these conversations going. And then the other thing I do with calls specifically is just thinking about off hours. Um, a lot of times on the East Coast, a lot of meetings that I've set have either been super early or um, during rush hour because people a lot of times just transfer their phone lines to their cell phone. So I've set more meetings that I can count, just people coming home from work that are willing to sit in their car and take a call or sitting in public transit and they're just, you know, whatever, yeah. tell me about what you do. So I think you just have to think outside the box a little bit and remember that regardless what you sell, there are other salespeople and they're also selling and they're doing the same things you do. So you have to think outside the box a little bit. Um, but I've had conversations. I know there was one account that I prospected and it was um, a Fortune 100 company. And I was trying to reach um, one of their C-levels that was um, specifically um, on the admin side of the house. 
and no one could reach him. We had activity for, this is at an old company, but we had activity for like seven, eight years on this account. It was oh, just wow. like never ending, no responses. And so I started the LinkedIn. I started liking stuff. I commented on some stuff. I think I shared one of his posts. Um, I emailed him, nothing. I sent him a LinkedIn message, nothing. And then I called um, one day, like after, I think it was like 6.30 PM or something, which would have been like 7.30 PM, I think his time. And I literally caught him and I was like, this is, you know, Alexine calling from XYZ company. And he was like, I knew you were going to call at some point. Like, how's it go? <laughs> he knew exactly who I was by the time I reached out. And I, I didn't yeah. even get a chance to pitch. He was like, I researched your company. We are somewhat in the market for something like this. Here's what I would like to see happen. Like, we'd like to have a demo scheduled for my team. Like, I didn't even, I don't even know if I talked on the call. I mean, the guy just like led me through their sales That's process. That's funny. But I think you just have to think outside of the box because had I kept calling him at like, you know, 9am the same time as everyone else every single day, I was probably never going to reach him. So I think just trying to be a little bit more strategic there. That's super cool. I, uh, I can't wait for this to air because there's just tons of, <laughs> tons of little golden nuggets in here. Um, I think this is probably a good stopping point before you take off. Where, where do you want people to go to connect with you? Like, where's the best place to learn more about you and what you're up to at your company? Yeah, I think LinkedIn is I live and breathe on LinkedIn. So definitely connect with me there. Um, I'm involved with a number of different organizations, Enterprise Sales Forum, Rework Training, Victory Lab, uh, Sales Enablement Society, I could name I think to like seven or eight others. Um, but I post any upcoming events there. So I would love for to see more salespeople at many of those events if they're interested. Um, but reach out to me there, send me a message if you have like a prospecting um, issue or something that is working or something that's not working and you want to share it, just send it my way. I'm always happy to go back and forth with you a little bit, but always love hearing from other salespeople. That was a great interview. I had a lot of fun with that one. And one of the big things that still sticks out to me is this concept of coaching your champion. I've never really thought of it like that. I've always thought of them like, Hey, I'm on the same side as this person. And, and really thinking about from their perspective, if you can get them bought in, naturally through the sales process by talking about like, Hey, how does this typically work with most of the companies you work with? And then also asking them who else it would affect. It's, it's a pretty natural conversation at that point to get other people involved. So that's something I definitely took away before you take off. I would love if you left an honest review on iTunes about what you think about the show, I'd love to continue getting on really great guests. And one of the things that helps with that is getting more exposure on the podcast and reviews really help. So Go to blissfulprospecting.com slash podcast, and you can see links for iTunes and all that good stuff where you can leave a review. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time.